Well, good morning, church. Welcome to everyone here in the building, and of course, welcome to everyone watching online. Welcome to our Long Crendon service this morning. Hope everyone's feeling good, ready to worship the Lord, are we? So let's um, still our hearts for a second as we focus on this morning. Our focus today is looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So let's just... I know the week's busy, isn't it? Let's still our minds and hearts for a second. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Just dwell on that a minute. Isn't that amazing that we come here this morning to hear God speak to us through his son? So shall we, before we do anything else, shall we just pray that we will have minds and ears to hear and hearts to receive? Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you speak to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you've appointed Jesus as heir to all things. And we pray as we meet this morning that you will speak to us again through the words of scripture and song, through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh and touch our hearts that we may be changed. May we leave this place today, Lord, in awe of you, Jesus, reminded that you in whom everything was made chose to die in our stead, reminded that you've forgiven us, cleansed us of all of our sins and enabled us, Lord, to come into your intimate presence. And that's what we ask for for this morning, Lord, your intimate presence, changing us, encouraging us. We lift this service to you this morning, Lord. Pray your blessing over us. Amen. Okay, Lane, if you wouldn't mind reading from Hebrews 1, the first four verses, and then Saab will come and preach. After you. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Uh, Before uh, before I uh, turn to God's word, uh, let's pray. So the psalmist uh, tells us uh, that God's words are sweeter than honey on the tongue. So, Father, as we come to dwell on your word this morning, Father, I pray that you would give us right hearts and eager minds. Help us to taste 
and to know the sweetness of your word and to taste and know your goodness. Speak to us powerfully this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Do please keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help uh, to me if you're able to follow along uh, as we go through. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, a series called The One Who Is to Come. And the idea behind the series is that we should take a little bit of time to stop uh, and to reflect and dwell uh, upon who it is that comes at Christmas, the one that we remember coming as a baby. And the danger is that we can uh, all too easily, we can rush to Christmas, we can rush uh, to the manger and there be overtaken by sentimentalism. Uh, to remember what it's like uh, to cuddle a baby and feel all gooey and, uh, and, and mushy inside. Now, uh, on my day off this week, uh, Karen and I went to Ellsbury to do a bit of shopping. Uh, as we pottered around the stores, uh, there was Christmas music being piped uh, into every shop we went into. Songs telling us uh, to gather around a tree in the mistletoe, uh, how last Christmas the singer gave his heart to someone else. Um, it was all there. And with uh, only 34 days to Christmas, it is possible, isn't it, for us to get, kind of get swept up and caught in uh, all of that. But it's not an overstatement to say that the birth of Jesus is an event that has shaped all of human history. Uh, and it's because of who was born in that manger. So over four weeks, we're looking at what the Bible says about this one who came at Christmas, who he actually is. And so today we're looking just at the first four verses of Hebrews, where the writer tells us about the supremacy of Christ. And I want us to see uh, three things. Firstly, I want us to see the revelation of the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Secondly, the problem of supremacy in the world. And thirdly, the supremacy of God's work in and through Christ. So those are the three things. That's where we're going this morning. So firstly, the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Take a look with me at the passage. Uh, We read this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustained, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The writer tells us of the supremacy of Christ by comparing the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself to the world, uh, as shown in the Old Testament, and then through Jesus. Uh, He uses the whole sweep of the Old Testament uh, to make the point. Uh, The writer's aim is to impress upon us the true supremacy of Christ. So let me start to open up uh, these verses, but please do continue to reflect on these verses over lunch uh, as you chat with one another and also uh, in your home groups uh, during the week. Firstly, in verse one, uh, we read that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors at many times and in various ways. We're told that God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
It's incredible, isn't it? God has been speaking to his people throughout history, uh, that period covered by the Old Testament here, spanning the time from creation through the fall, through Abraham, through Moses, uh, the gathering of the people out of Egypt and delivering them into the promised land right through to the return of the people from exile. It's clear from the rest of the letter of Hebrews that the writer is referring to God speaking in the Psalms, the books of history, uh, wisdom, in addition to you know what you might consider to be the classic um, prophetic texts. It's the whole Old Testament through which God has been speaking to humanity at many times and in many ways. Uh, God spoke at many times and in various ways. What God was revealing in the Old Testament was partial, it was incomplete and oftentimes uh, into a particular situation. Uh, naturally, a revelation that is incomplete and partial uh, doesn't allow us to see the full and complete picture of who God is. But importantly, incomplete and partial does not mean that the revelation in the Old Testament is unhelpful or untrue or misleading. The revelation by God was progressive through the Old Testament. Progressive in the sense not of it being less true and becoming more true, not in the sense of it being not worthy and becoming worthy, not less mature to more mature. It just means that it's been in parts. Those separate partial revelations in and of themselves won't allow us to see clearly and completely the true and full character of God. Nor can we fully understand what his redemptive plans for man are completely, only in part. Now, I try, uh, I remember trying to explain uh, to my children what it meant uh, for adults to go to work. Uh, They would know every day, well, before they even got up, I'd gone. uh, I would be off to this mysterious place called going to work. And when they came back from work, they would hear me tell them of the things that I'd been doing at this place called work. And they had their own ideas and their own understanding of what work was. Uh, I told them in many ways and at various times of what work was, but they just didn't see the fullness of that. And one day after Sunday lunch with Karen's parents, uh, we'd had a lovely lunch. They'd gone off back home, uh, but Karen's father had left his coat behind. Uh, and I said to Jamie, oh, well, um, that's a bit of a blow. I'll take it to Karen's dad uh, next week. And Jamie said, uh, what? Can't you just give it to him tomorrow? I was a bit confused. That, well, I'm not going to see him tomorrow. Um, so, Jamie, I'm not going to see him tomorrow. I can't, I can't give it to him tomorrow. And Jamie replied, but granddad's going to be at work. You're going to work. Can't you just give it to him When you're at work with him, he thought that work was the place that adults went to together. I'd spoken to Jamie about work in many times and in various ways. Nothing that I'd said was untrue or misleading, but Jamie had a partial and incomplete understanding of work. It was only when I took him with me to work that he understood that there was something bigger, something richer, something more complete about work that he simply hadn't understood. Now, without me taking Jamie to work, he wouldn't have had that full revelation of what work is. 
Jamie couldn't help or hope to understand uh, what work was. And amazingly, for us, God has chosen to reveal all of himself, his fullness, to us in and through Christ. Initially, God had been speaking to humanity about himself and what he had done, what he will do through all eternity. But through the Old Testament, our understanding of what had been revealed was partial and it was incomplete. But now the writer tells us that God has given us a final and a complete revelation of himself. And the writer tells us four amazing things about how this has been done. And he does this in less than two verses. Uh, Take a look with me at verses 2 to 3a. He says, but says this, but in these last days, he'd spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Firstly, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The revelation given through the prophets at many times and in various ways was partial and incomplete. Now, God has chosen to speak to us fully through his son, Jesus. And God has done that in a time that he's calling these last days. Uh, It's a term that means the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Uh, When Jesus returns, uh, there will be the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. God's people will be gathered together at his side to live face to face with him through all eternity. Uh, Those who don't trust in Christ will be cast for all eternity away from God's presence into a place called hell. So these last days are the days that we live in now. And God has initiated the period of time that will culminate in the return of Jesus, the time of ultimate judgment and of salvation. That in these last days that God has given the world a full revelation of himself and done that in Christ. And he's given us the church, us, to speak to the world about what God's done. Secondly, by speaking through his son, He's spoken not in many ways and at various times, but he's spoken on a once and for all basis. There is a completeness and an understandability which we couldn't grasp when God spoke in many times and in various ways. That's a full revelation of what we need. Not all we want to know, but everything that we need to know. Everything that we need to know so that we can know God. Not just know about him, but to know him. Know who he is, his goodness, and his good purposes for us. All fully revealed as he speaks to us in and through Christ. So for the revelation we need about God and his purposes... We find that all in Jesus, the word made flesh. And that has a really important and profound implication that no additional words 
of revelation are required or will be given. No additional words of revelation have been given to Muhammad. No additional words of revelation have been given to Guru Nanak. No additional words of revelation have been given to Joseph Smith. Not to anyone. None. God has finally revealed who he is and his good purposes in and through Christ. The word made flesh. Period. Thirdly, in verse 3, take a look with me. Uh, We're told that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The whole universe. Everything created. Everything that is seen and unseen. Upheld by his powerful word. In his power and in his majesty, the whole universe is sustained by him as easily as you speak to somebody else. It's that easy for him. It's not a strain. It's not an effort for him. All things are sustained by him. Stars in the night sky sustained by him. All life on this planet sustained by him. The next breath you take given by him. Fourthly, the question is, Why can we trust the words spoken by the Son of God? And we're told that in verse 3. Take a look with me. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's an awesome truth, isn't it? That Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. By seeing the Son... We see the Father. By knowing the Son, we know the Father. In the same way that the rays from the sun at midday reveal to us the glory of the sun. And the, the rays aren't the sun themselves. The sun isn't the rays. But the rays are the same essence as the sun. And they do reveal the true glory of the sun at the midday. And in the same way, Christ is a true and full revelation of the glory of God. And Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. The language here speaks of how one thing is the exact imprint of the other. In the same way, if you melt wax, drop it on a paper and make an impression with a signet ring, the soft wax takes on the exact representation of the ring. And in the same way, when we look upon Christ... We see the exact representation of the Father. We see the exact representation of God's character. And because God the Son has become, has come to us truly God and truly man, we can relate to him, can't we? We can know him. We can see what life looks like when we live life in all of its fullness. We can see the beauty of it. We can see the gentleness of it, the resolve to stand against evil, to love sacrificially, and the melt-in-the-mouth sweetness of Jesus. To know life and to know it in all of its fullness. Jesus, the Son, is uniquely placed to reveal God because he is God. And because he's God, he's supreme. He is above all else. Now, you may be here this morning not as a believer or unsure about what it is that you do believe. And instantly, when we talk about supremacy uh, of a person, especially in a religious context, 
Uh, we can think about abuses of power, can't we? We think that Jesus is supreme, but will that not just lead to progressively more and more strident religious extremism? And that brings us to our second point, the problem of supremacy in the world. Now, the letter to Hebrews uh, was written to Christians who were experiencing a season of trial. Uh, It was written to encourage them. uh, And it's also a huge encouragement to us today. The big challenge for them was that they were tempted to backslide, uh, to give up on the gospel, to think that there were other ways to salvation, to ignore the great salvation that's been offered to us in Christ. And for Christians today, we too can find ourselves in the same position to live and hold fast to what it means to be a Christian is progressively more and more difficult, isn't it, in in, in the world today, in our post-Christian world. And non-Christian friends and family uh, sometimes are openly hostile uh, to the claims that lie at the heart of Christianity. And in the face of that, we too sometimes can be tempted, can't we, to be less and less recognisable as Christians, either at the workplace, at the school gates, at home or at social gatherings. We can feel the pressure to backslide. Because the key idea in our culture today makes the Christian position on supremacy appear to be really unpalatable. Our culture, the waters in which we and our children swim, finds itself holding up the individual, the person, as the ultimate good, the self as the ultimate good. Our culture maintains that all notions of meaning and purpose are not revealed, but they're discovered as we gaze inwards into our own hearts and look for our heart's desires. The image of the good life or of our highest calling of culture, culture says our highest goal is to find happiness. That's the goal, happiness, and that comes by following our heart's desire. That's why any notion of external authority, especially one which is claiming to have a position of supremacy, is seen as harmful to that goal. And some of this, you know, we can understand, can't we? Uh, If we look back at some of the terrible, the horrible ideologies that have grown up as one group claims to be superior to another, you can find a gem of truth in the complaint that's made, can't you? The notion that certain races were considered to be superior to others, it's an abuse of power in order to subjugate a group of people who are different from you. Or the use of naked power as nationalism to claim and take from those who are weaker than you, that which doesn't belong to you. That's an image of the Portuguese arriving in Brazil. Or to claim the life of those who worked your land as your property, a case of serfs here. Again, an abuse of supremacy. And religion isn't immune to the challenge that it has caused and continues to cause so much trouble in the world. And we look back at the way that religion has made claims to supremacy and to do atrocious things. The Crusades. The sale of indulgences by the Church of Rome. The attack on the Twin Towers. And also the attack at Liverpool Hospital last week. Given the abuses of power that we have seen in history, our culture is deeply suspicious of any claim about supremacy. 
And because of that, because of the pressure we feel, we can be tempted to deny what the Bible says about Jesus. Under pressure, we might feel tempted to say that all religions are the same. Uh, just different paths up the same mountain. You have your truth, I have mine. But that's absolutely not what the Bible teaches. It's not what this passage in Hebrews says. I want us to see the thing that our hearts need and what our non-believing friends need is they need to see a sky-high view of who Jesus is. They need to see the supremacy of Christ because paradoxically, It's only a sky-high view of Christ that will undermine and drain all supremacy out of Christianity. And that brings us to our third point, the supremacy of God's work through Christ. Now, the abuse of power that takes place in nations, uh, in elected leaders, in the professional classes, in schools, in homes, uh, is because the world is fallen. Uh, It's because humanity, we've all turned away from God. And we've turned away from his ways. We've run as far as possible as we could away from him. Uh, Nietzsche had it right when he wrote in the 19th century that humanity has killed God. Uh, In its desire to live according uh, to its own rules, humanity's dispensed with any sense of connection to God. Essentially killing God. And what should the response be? Of God to such an act. How should the one who has created all things, sustains all things, placed humanity in a unique position, how should he respond when we rebel? And the answer to that question is found in our reading. And this is how we can know that this is the one true God. Our reading shows us that we can know that Christ's supremacy does not mean abuse. Take a look with me at the end of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, We're told two things. uh, That this one, who is supreme, the radiance of God, the exact representation of, uh, of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, this is the one who provides purification for sins. That he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We find that we've rebelled against God and we rightly deserve his judgment to be cast away from him for all eternity. But amazingly, it's God himself in the person of Jesus who comes to provide purification for our sins, your sins and my sins. And when we live without regard for God, that's rebellion. And the Bible calls that sin. And sin is putting ourselves where only God deserves to be. To reject God as the one who rules supremely over our lives. And because of that rejection, our relationship with God is broken. And this is where every other system of thought or religion says, you've got to work harder to make it better. You've got to clean up your life before God will accept you. It's down to you. But this is exactly where Christianity is utterly different from all other religions. Because Christianity tells us that the one who is supreme, that's the one who came low. That's the one who should be exalted. And that's the one who was humbled. Our rebellion deserves to have us expelled for all eternity. 
away from God. But he does not leave us in our mess. We remember at Christmas, it's the one who is supreme, is the one who comes into our mess. And he doesn't come down to wag a finger at us. No, Jesus comes to live the life that we should have lived, loving God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength. And having lived the perfect life, he then dies the death that we deserve. He dies in our place. The full weight of Christ's supremacy is the weight that is used not to punish us, but to rescue us, to make purification for our sins. If sin is putting ourselves where God deserves to be, then salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be. We deserve to hang on a cross for our rebellion. But God comes and he stands in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. And when you have power like Jesus has, and that power is utterly surrendered to bring enemies to himself, then we have a God who is not about using supremacy to punish, marginalise, or reject, but rather to heal, to bring close, and to reconcile. And if we can see the one who is truly supreme, the one who is truly God, giving it all up on a Roman cross to have you and to have me, then you can start to live a radically different life, a life that's marked by beauty, gentleness, and strength. It's not to say that your life's going to be easy, but you'll have the strength to live with great poise because you know that the one who sustains the whole universe with the word of his power loves you and is with you in your darkness. The one who is the exact representation of God will never abandon you. The one who is the radiance of God's glory is the one whose love will shine in your heart when all other loves fail. A love that will take you through death into all eternity. And that's the one, that's the one that we remember at Christmas as coming in the manger. The exact representation of God, but come as a man, supreme and surrendered, lion and lamb. And it's because of the supremacy of Christ, because of that, real Christian faith can never be coercive, can never be intimidating, can never be controlling, and can never be vengeful. It will fight injustice, but it will do that through sacrificial loving. It will seek to show love, even when it hurts. Only when we take that truth of the Supreme One dying on a cross for us into our hearts, what Jesus did coming as a baby in a manger at Christmas, that you can only, you must see those two things. The one who is supreme coming as a baby in a manger, and that will completely transform your sense of what Christmas is all about. Uh, to close, what might this look like? If you really could take that deep into your own hearts, what, what might that look like? Uh, in 2006, 
in Pennsylvania in the USA, uh, a tiny Amish community uh, had a school there, and a man stormed a classroom. He shot ten young girls, and he killed five. He then turned the gun on himself. The members of that brutalized Amish community donated money to the killer's widow and her three young children. They attended the funeral of the killer, despite having buried their own children the day before. They hugged the widow and the members of the killer's family. The mother of the young man who had uh, committed the atrocity and the whole community were completely bowled over by the forgiveness and the love that they saw. A love that was rooted in the way that Christ forgave them. That community was able to love and forgive in the darkest moments because they knew the forgiveness of Christ. They knew that God had lost his son on the cross. How about you? Are you harboring any unforgiveness in your own heart? Uh, People say that we shouldn't be fundamentalists because fundamentalists cause trouble. But it does depend rather on what your fundamental is. The Christian fundamental is the one who is supreme, being born as a baby in a manger, growing to be a man who dies on a cross, dying on that cross to rescue sinners, giving up supreme power to serve his enemies. That's a fundamental that heals, restores, and redeems. It's a supremacy that you can trust. If this morning you realize that, you're, that in your own life that you're not trusting Jesus, what's stopping you from coming to the one who is supreme and showed his love for you by dying in your place? If you do trust Jesus, what's stopping you from allowing the gospel to be at work in all areas of your life? Ponder those questions and let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. The one who is your son, the revelation of you, the radiance of your glory, dying to bring us home. Father, help us to grow deeper in trusting you. Help us to be a people that lay down power, control and influence. That our lives might be your beacon of light, of love and truth in a dark world. Father, where we're failing to trust you by your spirit and through your word, grant us the strength that we need as your image bearers to live in a way that radiates your glory and mirrors who you are in the world. Amen.